Welcome to Australian Hiker. We're your hosts, Tim and Jill Savage. This is episode 18 of the Australian Hiker Podcast and the first of our bonus episodes for March of 2017. Today's episode is titled The Overland Track, Expectations versus Reality. And this is going to be the first of a series of three bonus episodes that will be airing every two weeks for the next six weeks on our recent Overland Track hike in Tasmania. Today we're going to be discussing a bit about the Overland Track to give you an overview of what the track's like. And then we're going to go through and discuss the expectations we had before we started the trip and what it actually ended up being in reality. Okay, the Overland Track is probably one of the world's and certainly Australia's best known hiking tracks. Whenever they compile lists of tracks that people would like to do or the world's best tracks, it's not unusual for the Overland Track to be included as part of this list. The Overland Track is actually in Tasmania, which is our southern state, our southern small island state off the the mainland of Australia. And um, Tasmania is well known for wilderness areas, for excellent hiking. And in fact, you can probably consider Tasmania as the hiking mecca of Australia. The track itself is approximately 65 kilometres long if you don't do any side trips. And for us, that was what we did. Uh, We ended up doing a number of side trips that made it much longer than just the minimum distance. Now, for me, this trip was probably a bit different than most of the other trips that I've gone through and done over the previous years. As mentioned in previous episodes, I'm an obsessive planner. I like to know every detail about a trip that I'm going to do. I normally do do planned trips a long time uh, in the future. And to give you an example, I'm planning trips that, I'm being, that I'll be doing up to and including 2022. And that gives you an idea of, of how obsessive I am. Um, but for this trip, it was one we only decided to do about halfway through last year. And um, we actually ended up doing the trip in February. So for me, that's a, a very short lead time from a, tra- from a planning perspective. So we decided to do the trip last year, uh, and the Overland Track is a permitted track. Um, The the track itself has become so popular, uh, like a lot of American tracks and a lot of European tracks, that they had to limit the number of people that actually hike or start the hike in any one day. Uh, The permitting system operates between the 1st of October and the 31st of May each year, Uh, And there's a maximum of 60 hikers that can start the walk on on any day during that time. That's 34 independent hikers, and the rest are made up of group uh, groups or commercial operators. Now, what this means is that you're never going to be alone on the track, um, and you're uh, you're always going to be seeing people. It's it's almost impossible, particularly during the warm months of the year, to go through and not see people on the trail. Uh, But it does mean that you have to put a bit of forethought into when you're going to do the trip, 
uh, and when there are is actually availability to go through and book. And for me, this is why uh, for us, even though we did the trip in February, we actually made the booking on the system on the booking system in uh, in October last year, just to ensure we got the dates that we wanted. I'd gone through from uh, and done a bit of research and decided that I wanted to have a, a fairly dry trip as far as it was possible. And keeping in mind that Tasmania, and particularly in the wilderness area, is quite wet compared to the west, rest of Australia. So that ended up being February. And one of the other reasons we wanted to do February is there was less likelihood of snow. Uh, and the overland track can have snow any month of the year. And I must admit, that was probably one of my big concerns um, about this hike. Um, not a big fan of snow, uh, do get cold and, uh, you know, had anticipated, um, I guess, changeable uh, summer weather um, and even slightly cooler summer weather, but wasn't sure I was quite prepared for snow. Uh, we have had a friend of ours um, who's done, who have done the track a, a number of times uh, and even during the middle of summer, he actually managed to get snowed into one of the huts uh, and after three days had to walk out even with the snow because he was starting to run out of food. Now, as I mentioned, uh, we'd gone through and booked to do this trip in February. Um, partly the, um, the trip length was really set by the amount of available holiday time that we had. So we had a two-week period between leaving work and going back. Uh, I'd never been to Tasmania before, Jill had, so I wanted to have a look a bit around as well. So I wanted to spend a couple of days in Hobart, uh, a day in Launceston, just having a look around and seeing what things were like. Uh, and the day in Launceston as well allowed us to uh, pick up gas and, um, and get, the, get the lay of the land a bit before we headed off on, the, on our walk the next day. So for us, this allowed seven days to actually walk the trail. Once we decided the amount of walking days we had, then we were presented with a huge number of options as far as not just doing the basic trail. So as I mentioned, the actual basic trail itself, 65 kilometres, and potentially if you're a fit, uh, fast walker, you could probably do that comfortably in three days, but you, you're going to miss a lot if you do that in such a short period. Usually the track's designed to be done in five to six days, and preferably longer if you want to get the, the most out of the trail itself. There's quite a lot of things you can choose to do on the trail. If you're a peak bagger, someone who likes to climb mountains, there's certainly a number of different peaks that you can climb along the trail. If you're into history or you're a history buff, there's a lot of old historic uh, huts along the trail that um, they're, they're, they can be used for emergency uh, camping if need be, but not usually, uh, because some of these huts are 100 years old plus. So again, from a historical point of view, if you're interested in history, um, there's lots to see there. One of the main reasons for doing the Overland Track is probably the scenery. The track itself is actually located within a World Heritage Area, uh, and it's a natural World Heritage Area. Um, uh, it, it's been listed because of its scenery, and the scenery in this area is pretty spectacular. And it's not just the scenery, it's the fact that you're moving through a whole range of uh, different ecosystems, um, you're going, you know, from alpine um, areas into heath, into um, tropical rainforest, um, and 
you know, it's quite varied over that, you know, relatively short five to seven day walk um, and probably something that, you know, most people wouldn't necessarily experience in a lifetime. So given that the time we had available um, and um, I've got a particular interest in photography, I'm not particularly interested in climbing tall mountains. It's sort of, uh, I'll do them if I have to go over them, but I won't particularly go out of my way. So uh, the only trip, the only uh, mountain we actually planned on climbing was Cradle Mountain. Uh, and in the end, we, we didn't end up doing it because we uh, the, the cloud bank rolled in. The entire top of the mountain was just covered in cloud. And it got to a stage with talking to some of the hikers who had were up there but when the cloud came in. It actually got quite dangerous because they couldn't actually see where the trail was. And if you ever see pictures of Cradle Mountain or been up it, uh, if you go the wrong way, uh, you can end up with some uh, pretty serious drop-offs, which you don't particularly want. Um, and in our uh, episode 22, which is the last of these uh, three podcasts that we'll be doing on the Overland Track, we'll actually hear from some hikers who were caught up there in, that, in those conditions uh, and give you an idea of what it was like. And I think that's one of the things about this uh, trail is that you can plan to do certain things, but you also need to plan to have a plan B. Um, uh, given the weather, uh, given the things that are happening, given the opportunity that you uh, might find yourself presented with um, and, uh, you know, being flexible, being uh, receptive, uh, I think along the way are probably good things to do on this particular track. Now, for me, my interest lies in photography uh, and particularly macro photography. Uh, so one of the, the, the side trips that we looked at doing was Pine Valley, uh, which was actually an overnight trip. Um, so we factored that um, uh, into uh, what we were going through and doing when we were walking. Now, the actual booking system itself uh, is an online booking system. Uh, the permit to, to walk the overland track is, uh, is $200 at the moment. Uh, and on top of that, there's also a park uh, access fee, which at its cheapest is $30. Uh, you can get more expensive versions that will last you for longer periods. But for us, the basic one uh, allowed us to do the, uh, the, the the park that we wanted to do and the time frame we wanted to do. If you choose to do the walk outside of the permit se- uh, season, you don't pay any fees. You can walk either direction, whereas during the summer months, you can, only, you can start at Cradle Mountain and walk to Lake Sinclair. So essentially you're walking uh, north to south, um, but in the off-season you can walk either direction, uh, south to north or north to south. Um, uh, But again, in the off-season, the actual park access fee does apply. So you're down to about a cost of $30. Um, But for most people, they want to go through and do the trips uh, during the warmer months uh, when there's less, uh, less snow conditions around. Now, once we'd actually got ourselves uh, booked in and worked out where we wanted to go, uh, the next thing we needed to look at was transport. So, as I said, I hadn't been to Tasmania before, uh, and doing the trip itself, the easiest way to get to the track is to go fly into and out of Launceston. Um, there are other places you can fly into and out of which are not necessarily cheaper or dearer, but just there might be just a bit of further travelling to get there. Uh, for us, we wanted to fly into Launceston and, as I said, fly out of Hobart 
So it gave us a chance to do a bit of tourism as well. There are plenty of transport companies available, and I'll go through and put a link on the written um, version of this podcast, which will be up uh, at the same time as this podcast. Um, But there are a number of different operators, um, and I would suggest you book well in advance, as um, uh, if you leave it late, it can either be more expensive or you may miss the preferred times that you want to travel. Yeah, and I think that's a, that's a good point, Tim, because you know so, sometimes that um, connecting transport is either the thing that you think about uh, last, um, or the thing that perhaps you spend less money on. Um, we probably didn't uh, quite deliberately because we wanted to go at particular times find the cheapest option, but we certainly found the best option for us. And the option um, that, you know, was very um, accommodating, um, was uh, very service-focused. We knew we were going to go in the right direction. And we also got our bag dropped at uh, Lake St. Clair for the end of the trip. So it was going to be there uh, when we arrived and we could, you know... Have a, have a shower and put on clean clothes and all of that kind of stuff before we went off to Hobart. Now, once we'd worked out our time frame and worked out our, uh, our, our transport down there, we, uh, we really sat down and worked out in detail what we had time to do on the trip. So in addition to the 65-kilometre short version of the trip, we also added a number of side trips. Uh, we actually started the track from uh, the Cradle Mountain um, uh, interpretation center by doing the cradle valley boardwalk and this is something that i would suggest you go through and do because it's quite a good walk that was five kilometers that added to the trip we did the side trip to lake will another three kilometers we did the old pelion hut which added another two kilometers uh, we visited dalton and ferguson falls another kilometer uh, and then we did the visit to pine valley uh, which was 17.8 kilometers and on top of that, went up to the Labyrinth uh, and the Acropolis, which added another 4.8 and 6.4 kilometres uh, as well. And to top it all off, instead of finishing the trip off at Narcissus Hut uh, we, uh, and getting the ferry to Cynthia Bay, we actually did the walk along the lake, which was quite a nice walk, and that added 17.5 kilometres to the trip. So all up, our trip was just on 122 kilometres overall. And I... I found it quite funny that um, some people were really pushing hard and moving very fast and uh, we arrived at Lake St. Clair um, about two days later than one particular group um, and they were still there. <laughs> so so it didn't sort of make sense to me and I, I understand that they were waiting for transport and all of that sort of thing. Um, But as I said, it didn't quite make sense to move so fast on the track to then uh, essentially sit at Lake St. Clair for a couple of days waiting for a bus out. (laughs) Okay. Now, the other thing you'll find, the website for the Overland Track, uh, which is uh, organised by Parks Tasmania, is a very good website. It has a lot of information. But sometimes the information is not quite explicit as to why it's there. So they've got quite detailed gear lists. Uh, and one of the issues, as we've already mentioned, is the weather is quite variable. It can be quite wet. You can get snow. 
um, it can be quite windy. So you really do need to come prepared. You may not be able to sleep in the hut. You may have to be sleeping outside, so you need to have a tent. As part of the process for the paperwork, you do actually sign a form uh, and saying, yes, we've got all these bits of equipment, including a tent and sleeping bag uh, and, and sturdy boots with you, uh, because there are a number of um, uh, people who fairly regularly have to get evacuated off the trail, either from lack of fitness or lack of equipment. Now, I talked about before, uh, or talking about the, um, the permitting system, one of the things I found with the online permitting system, it was a bit clunky. Um, it would have been much easier to have one page, one step system. Um, but booking the actual uh, track itself and then the park uh, fee uh, involved sw swapping between a couple of different pages. Uh, but overall, it was quite an easy sort of process to deal with. Now, equipment wise, um, both of us carried, on the, at least on the first day, our packs were approximately 16 and a half kilos, and that included three litres of water and seven days worth of food each. So um, not a particularly heavy pack, and certainly after the first day, we dropped the water down quite, uh, quite a lot because uh, uh, I must admit I like, having, I like drinking about two, two and a half litres of water a day. I prefer not to, to draw it out of the local water sources, uh, although it would have been very easy to do that. Um, but certainly um, after the first day, I dropped the water down, and I do use a filter anyway. Uh, but certainly if you're going to be carrying just a one-litre water bottle and picking up water out of the streams and creeks, uh, definitely carry a filter. I'm just having a bit of a chuckle about the 16, uh, 16 kilograms, which is not too heavy, according to Tim. Um, <laughs> it was certainly heavy enough for me, and some of the... Uh, particularly on the first day, there were some particularly steep climbs and particularly steep descents. Um, and, you know, it, uh, it it was a bit of a struggle with the amount of water I was carrying. I did drop down to two, two litres um, for the subsequent days and you would have easily been able to pick up water along the way. Um, the rainwater tanks at the huts... Uh, is very good and uh, is a quite a reliable source, notwithstanding the signs up that says, you know, you need to filter and you need to um, sterilise the water. Okay, so um, now that while we're talking about huts, the huts themselves are a bit variable. Some of them say like New Pelion Hut and Bert Nichols Hut uh, can only be described as huge. Uh, they'll sleep 30-odd hikers quite comfortably. Some of the smaller huts, um, a bit older, uh, single room, you might comfortably get 16 hikers in there, but in bad conditions can take 24. And they would be described as extremely cosy. <laughs> um, we certainly um, mentioned, I think on previous uh, podcasts, where sleeping in huts isn't our first choice, and, and this trip certainly reinforced it. Um, I must admit I've, I'm sold on sleeping in tents, uh, but sometimes we just didn't have an option where there were some large commercial groups in, there were no platforms available, uh, so um, and the grass was, um, I know talking to some of the people that did camp on grass, they found they had leeches climbing up their tents, so uh, on those occasions we did actually stay inside the hut. Uh, the National Parks Service in Tasmania is putting in a lot more tent platforms 
that that make it much more uh, pleasant uh, to pitch your tent, um, and also to minimise the impact on the environment. That's the main reason why they do them, uh, rather than the comfort of the um, the hikers. Uh, but I guess it uh, has the benefit of uh, both aspects. So that does make it a bit more pleasant, but in some areas like Pine Valley, uh, there weren't quite enough um, uh, platforms prepared. Uh, That's increasing, but certainly be aware of that. Um, And what it does do, though, is it drives people to head off early uh, to get a spot in the, the next hut, if they know it's going to be crowded or they know it's going to be um, a relatively small hut, which, you know, defeats, again, the purpose of um, enjoying the environment through which you're walking. Now, just talking about Pine Valley, um, when we were actually there, they were actually building a, a number of new uh, tent platforms because it was pretty limited. Uh, and, and Pine Valley is actually off the overland track itself. It is a side track. Uh, and it's one that a lot of uh, weekend hikers um, coming up from um, from Launceston or Hobart can do uh, without having to have a permit. Uh, we're talking to a couple of the guys who are building the, uh, the the platforms, and they were saying that they when they dug a hole, they actually dug up some rubbish that had been buried. Uh, and this is back in the days when the attitude with hikers and campers was burn, bash, and bury. Uh, and they said they dug this uh, rubbish up, and it was dehydrated food bags from the 1970s. And this was when the hut itself was actually built. So they, they packaged all all up and they were going to take it out. Yeah, that, that was a pretty interesting find. Um, just on that, um, Tim did mention uh, people walking in from Lake Sinclair. That's, there's a certain part of the, the track um, where you can uh, walk in both directions if you're not doing the whole track. So you can do a couple of days coming up from Lake Sinclair, which means... For those who are travelling north to south, you then start meeting people coming the the other way uh, towards the end of the track, which um, can be a bit disorienting and a bit confusing, but that's really what they're doing. So they get to walk, walk in and then walk out uh, the way that the north to south people are walking out. Now, one thing we did expect, um, we'd been to- talked to enough people who'd done the track before and was told how wet it can potentially be. So we, we came prepared for basically seven days worth of rain and we were quite quite pleasantly supri- surprised where we had the first day we had intermittent, very light showers, uh, heavy enough to have to have a jacket on, but not, not, not too heavy to have to have it done up all the time. We also had a day when we left Bert Nichols' hut and headed towards Pine Valley where it was quite steady, reasonably heavy rain for most of the morning. Um, uh, and we, uh, we we chose to head off early that, that morning. In fact, we were the first, uh, first pair out of uh, Bert Nichols' hut on that day. And I think it was actually quite a good move because um, we found that the, the trail was starting to collect water even as we were walking. And another hour or two, it would have been quite wet. And Tim says it was reasonably steady rain. I think it was bucketing. Um, it was pretty heavy. Um, and uh, as he said, it would have been terrible um, an hour or so later, um, not just with the water collecting. Um, the mud was starting to get quite heavy in places. Um, and also in that part of the 
the trail, you're walking over a lot of uh, tree roots and uh, the roots get very, very, very slippery. And that brings us on to uh, on the actual trail surfaces itself. So really with the trail surfaces is that there's a couple of main types. Because we're in a World Heritage Area and there's a fairly fragile environment, you get a lot of hikers, if they don't have a trail to walk on, they'll walk on the easiest possible route, which means you get a very broad trail and do a lot of damage to the environment. So there's quite a lot of boardwalks uh, through a large area of the trail. Now, the boardwalks can be reasonably wide, you know, 1.2 to 1.5 metres wide in some areas, uh, down to uh, just... Uh, about eight inches wide, and I'll I'll, I'll put a, po- a photo up on the uh, the written version of this post uh, where it was a real struggle for me to actually put my feet side by side because I've got fairly large feet. Um, so, but it certainly does make it easier walking on timber than walking through mud. And it definitely does uh, protect the environment. Um, you can you can see the impact. Um, where people come across a bit of a puddle, they decide they don't want to walk through the puddle or there's a bit too much mud, and then they start diverting out to the left and the right and you end up with this bulging uh, part of the trail. Whereas if you've got the boardwalk, um, and I think there's probably about 65% of the track that's boardwalk, um, when you've got the boardwalk, you, you you can see the vegetation coming right up to the very edge, no matter how narrow or wide the or wide the boardwalk is. You can see the vegetation coming right up to the edge of the of the boardwalk, and that wouldn't happen if there was a um, the absence of the boardwalk and people were making their own way. So, you know, hats off to the National Park Service; they are really managing the impact on the in, on the World Heritage Site. Um, at the same time as facilitating access by hikers and providing opportunity for people to experience the trail. Okay, the other type of trail service when you're not walking on boardwalk is just natural form trail. And this is where the rainfall tends to be an issue. So when it is very heavy rain, you can get a lot, quite a lot of heavy mud. Uh, and in some areas, particularly from Windier, Windermere Hut uh, to New Pelion Hut, we had not, uh, not a huge amount of rain, but it had been rain, raining the previous days before that. So we had a lot of mud and a lot of tree roots. And I do mean a lot of tree roots. Um, and I think this is probably someone having a go at me personally here because the tree roots, uh, the spaces between the roots were just too small for me to put my feet. Uh, you know, when I've got a, a, a heavy leather boot on um, and they're large boots, I was finding I was having to walk on top of the tree roots and they were quite slippery. Uh, and I remember last year when we were doing our Larapinta trail trip, talking to a local Tasmanian who'd done the, the overland track a number of times, and he said he'd actually lost control and gone sliding down the hill for 20 or 30 metres and couldn't control himself because the, the mud, mud was so slippery. Yeah, there was one part of the the trail that was really, really, really muddy, hard going for everyone. And uh, you'll hear some of that on um, the uh, trail uh, interviews that we did. Um, And, you know, yeah, it was uncomfortable. And, you know, for that reason, it was quite memorable. Um, Having said that, we were in a wilderness area and you expect... 
um, wilderness things to happen. Um, the one last bit of type of trail we had, and again, this was in Pine Valley, walking up to the labyrinth. We were walking up a rocky gully, <laughs> and, and really it wasn't a rocky gully, it was a creek bed. So walking up rocks, and you're walking through a creek bed, which is, you know, you're, you're in six inches of water. Uh, not for very long periods, but it's enough to be annoying. And six inches of water, but uh, water coming down the cliff face as well. So it was a little bit like a waterfall in some places. Um, the only thing about that was that we weren't quite sure if we were on the right track, but we definitely were. Um, but it did make you wonder about whether or not you'd taken a wrong turn. Okay, now getting on to signage on the trail. The signage is very, very, very good. Um, you don't need to have a compass uh, or, for that matter, even a map to be able to use the trail. But again, I would suggest you actually buy the information pack because it does have very good information on uh, helping to plan the trip. Um, but um, certainly um, the, the trail markers are there and it surprised me in a couple of areas that were very close together and on two metre tall posts. And then I realised that, okay, this is for people that are actually going through in wintertime and you've got a metre or so of snow, so you need to know where you're going. Um, the, uh, now, the main reason that people tend to go to uh, Tasmania and go to do the overland track is the scenery. And without a doubt, this is a very scenic trail. Um, it's a World Heritage Area that's listed for its wilderness values. Um, you've got tall, open forests. You've got... Uh, tall, closed, dark, forbidding sort of forests. Uh, you've got open uh, grasslands and, and, and moss plains. Um, you've got quite a, th quite a big variation of things to go through and see. You've got mountain peaks. Uh, you've got creeks and rivers. Um, so there's nothing you're really going to go through and tire of on this trip. As I mentioned before, I'm a keen photographer. I particularly like doing macro photography. Uh, and for me, the highlight of the trip was actually Pine Valley. Uh, I could have quite comfortably have spent two days with my large macro camera and lens, which weighs around about 1.4 kilos, complete with extra batteries and, 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 and memory cards, just taking photo after photo for two or three days because the moss and lichen and small growth was just spectacular. Yeah, I have to agree. Um, it, it was, you know, beautiful to say the least and certainly took took me back to my... Um, early career working on lichens and mosses and fungi and uh, uh, yeah I was just uh, in a little bit of uh, botanical heaven. Um, so yeah it's um, I mean apart from what we were there for looking at you've also got views from the mountains and uh, and views out through the scenery itself but uh, I do like looking at the little stuff rather than the big open views. Now, it can't be a hiking trip without having to watch out for certain things. And as we've already mentioned, tree roots and mud and uh, losing your footing is an issue. Um, and again, there are seems to be at least once a week where people seem to be getting evacuated off the trail because they've broken or twisted an ankle. Um, so uh, you need to be very careful about keeping your footing. So I would strongly suggest you take a pair of, pair of hiking poles. As far as creepy crawlies are concerned, tiger snakes are probably the most common snake on the trail. And funnily enough, we were probably the only people out of all the people we came across <laughs> who didn't see tiger snakes. Uh, and we were looking for them, but we just didn't see them. Um, uh, leeches. Uh, we talked to a couple who decided they weren't going to camp in a hut one night, 
didn't want uh, the platform platforms were full, so they set their tent up, tent up on grass. And even before they'd gotten in the tent, they had a number of leeches crawling up the side of the tent. So I decided to sleep inside. Yeah, I, I have a few rules, and one of the rules is no leeches. So I was on the lookout and uh, saw one uh, on within the first couple of hours um, of our hike, and I was well and truly alert from them on. then on, let me tell you. Okay, so overall I was presently surprised. I think we were both presently surprised about what we actually expected and what we actually got. We expected to have much worse weather conditions. That didn't eventuate, but I think that was a bit of luck more than anything else. Uh, we didn't get snow, and that was partly the reason we'd planned to go in February, but that's always a risk at any time of the year. Um, we... Uh, we saw lots of people, and that's what we expected. Uh, so, again, you're never really going to be alone on the track. Um, and we expected very good scenery, and we certainly got that. Um, just one last thing. As I mentioned, we did do the walk along Lake St. Clair uh, from Narcissus Hut, and it's something I would strongly recommend people do. It is 17.5 kilometres. Um, it means you don't catch the ferry. Um, but, um, you know, if this is a hiking trip, you want to get the full experience and I would strongly suggest you do the walk if you've got the time available to you. Yeah, that was a lovely end to, um, the, the hike. It was, it's quite a, an easy, um, downward sort of, uh, roaming sort of walk through, um, some, uh, open forest, um, along the side of the lake and it was just lovely. Okay, now one of the questions I always tend to ask is would I recommend hiking the overland track? Uh, And the answer to that is yes, I would. I probably would suggest that everybody does this track at least once. It really is considered the the pinnacle of Australian hiking. Um, It's the the trail that non-hikers tend to know. Certainly people who are keen hikers know it. Uh, And I know a number of keen hikers who have done it a number of times. Now, would I do it again? I'll have to say the answer to that is no. I did enjoy it. I thought it was worthwhile doing it, and I certainly am glad I did it. I will go back and do Pine Valley at some stage. I think that as a short two- or three-day trip was spectacular, and I think for me that was the highlight of the trip. And as I said, I'll go back there with a macro lens on a camera and just take photos for two or three days. Um, but you know, I came away from the trip thinking I enjoyed that. It was really good. I'm glad I did it. But I'm not planning on, I haven't started planning another trip. Whereas our Larapinta Trail track last year, I'm starting to plan on doing another trip back again at some point in the future. Uh, So that had a a big enough impression on me to make me want to go back and do that trip, trip again. I think also the other thing for me personally is I'm not a fan of wet cold conditions um <laughs> i i prefer as, as much as i can cope with it i don't mind walking in rain but you know if you if i've got a choice walking through desert environments is probably my preferred environment of choice uh, and as i said um more than happy to go back and do the Lara Pinta trail but no plans in the immediate future at least and that, and that may change to go back and do the overland track look i Likewise, um, I think I expected it to be uh, tougher than it was. I think, you know, 20 years ago, without all of the boardwalks, it probably would have been pretty hardcore, Um, I I think, uh, as as it is. You know, if you were going to do it quickly, um, that's pretty tough. Uh, But as it is with uh, a a steady 
uh, number of kilometres a day and the extent of the boardwalk, uh, I think it was a, a you know it was a good um, it's a good trail to do for a varied range of people. And you know when you go and hear the interviews you did uh, we did along the way, you will get a sense of the quite varied people that were walking. Um, very, very, very keen hikers, people who hadn't done much at all and a whole bunch of people in between. So um, the rangers do a fantastic job. Uh, they are looking out for people and it's very well, um, uh, I, guess, I guess, monitored. Uh, that's probably the way to do it. Um, so that's that's a good thing from a safety perspective. Um, uh, definitely worth doing and like Tim um, I probably would do parts of it, particularly around Pine Valley again, which was just stunning. Okay, that's all for today's episode. Um, I hope that's given you a bit of overview on uh, what uh, what to expect if you look at going to the, through and doing the, uh, the Overland track. As I mentioned, in um, two weeks' time, our next episode on the Overland track will be published. Uh, and that will be a day on the Overland track. It'll give you an idea of what uh, a typical day on the track is like. Episode 22, which is the one that will be published two weeks after that, uh, will be all the interviews we went through and collected on the trail, uh, and it'll give you an idea of what varying, as, as Jill said, people of varying levels of experience, how they found the trail. Okay, I hope you enjoyed this episode. Uh, as always, this episode is available for download on our website through iTunes and Stitcher Radio. Uh, If you have the opportunity, please go through and rate us on iTunes to help get the message out there about this podcast. Next week's episode, we're back to our regular fortnightly episodes, and the topic of next week is sleep. We'll be looking at sleep systems and relation to hiking. That's all from us for now. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Bye for now.